We've been looking at passages which would seem to be contradictory to the position of the believer eternally in Christ. And before we begin with what is at least my intention to be the last in this series, it's not the last one by any means, may I, with a certain amount of fear and trembling, ask if there are any questions to this point about that which we've already discussed. Just as clear as about. Oh. <laughs> we discussed the tenth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Hebrews the last time we were here. As as it connected with the sixth chapter, which we dealt with the week prior to that. All right. We're going to have a look then, first of all, to a subject rather than a text, and the subject begins in Revelation 3 for our purposes, so if you'll turn there with me, please. Revelation 3. Now, before we ever start with this, I want to say something which I probably will not get said if I don't say it now. It is vitally important for us to remember that when we're dealing with any problem text, quote-unquote. And you understand that any text is a problem because of me, not because of the text. We all understand that? We're the thing that makes it a problem. When we're dealing with any problem text, particularly as it relates to any established truth, whatever it be, then we must look at it in the light of what we do know and work from what we do know to what we don't know. For example, if God makes a stated, plain declaration in the Scripture, it is not behooving to me to call into question that stated plain declaration on the basis of a remote text. We're always moving from what is established truth to discern what we don't understand about other truths. Let me give you a quick example. How abundantly plain it's been made in the New Testament Scripture, whether you be Arminian or Calvinistic or sovereign or whatever you might label yourself to be, how abundantly plain it's been made in the Scripture that justification is by faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Is that correct? Is there anybody here that has a problem with that? And I don't know of any Bible-believing individual who does have a problem with, yet, with that. And yet the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2 that justification belongs to those who obey the law of God. You want to see the text? Do you remember the text? Are you all here this morning? How many of you are here? Now I understand. I've got about 10% of you. So it is my responsibility then to ascertain what the apostle is talking about in Romans chapter 2 so that I don't leave a text which would seemingly on the surface totally contradict the statements especially of Romans chapter 5 but of the numerous other scriptures as well. Peter chapter 1, for example, and so forth. So there are obviously texts which cause problems. And it becomes our responsibility before God then to search the Scriptures. Again, in the words of Solomon in the Proverbs, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the honor of kings to search it out. So God has, in a sense, like hidden treasure, buried the truths of the Word of God in various places in the Scripture, and it is line on line, precept on precept, here a little and there a little, until we bring the whole together into a harmony and a whole. All right. Any comments about that? We go on. 
Revelation chapter 3. And unto the angel of the church at Sardis write, These things say as he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast the name, that thou livest, and art dead. Moving on over, please, to verse 4. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis that have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Obviously, the text we're looking at is in verse 5, I will not blot his name out of the book of life. I think I mentioned to you in time past, repeatedly I'm asked about this verse in particularly opposite terms from which it's stated. What about that text over there where God says he'll blot, in Revelation, where he'll, he says he'll blot their name out of the book of life? He didn't say that at all. He said, I will not blot their name out of the book of life. And I don't know why it is when believers approach this particular text, they always approach it with a negative attitude to start with. We have a miserable self-image as believers. Katie Beth, you teach a class on amenities to the young lady. Would you say that self-image is a major problem? Would you say that self-image is a major problem to adults? Anybody disagree with that? We all got this miserable attitude toward us. Well, I don't know why God ought to take me to heaven. Guess what, saints? I don't know why he ought to take you either. I don't know why he ought to take me. I can't think of one good reason. Aren't you glad he doesn't have to have a reason? Therefore, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Again, may I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance the word translated freely there is the same word you have in John's gospel, they hated me without a cause. Oh, you're good students. That's good. They hated me without a cause. So may I retranslate from Romans 3? Therefore, being justified without a cause through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He looked, searched, couldn't find one reason to justify you, and therefore he could. If he found any reason at all to justify you, he could not have done so. For salvation is of the Lord. So when God finds something in us that recommends him to him, it destroys redemption. As long as God finds nothing in me that recommends me to him, redemption can be in Christ Jesus. All right. Now, this is going to seem unrelated, but it's tremendously important to this text. Each of the, let's throw up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Each of the seven letters to the churches in the Revelation, <clears throat> can't write and talk to Can't even write without talking. Um, Pergamon. Come on, y'all. Each of the seven churches in Revelation is indicative of one prophetic period of the church from Pentecost to the translation. Now, does not suggest that the seven churches do not specifically point to churches that, to whom these letters were written and to problems that were present in those churches at that time. There were literal churches in what we know as Turkey today, all of them in western Turkey. They were literal churches. They had these problems, and Jesus was writing through John to these churches to correct these problems and to give warning to the remnant that was his in the midst of an apostate society. But while that is true, God never does just one thing. And they have, at the same time, not instead of, but at the same time, prophetic reference to the experience of the church from Pentecost to the translation. May I say parenthetically that the church is only constituted by those who are born of the Spirit from Pentecost to the translation. Abraham was not in the church. John the Baptist was not in the church. 
David was not in the church. The church is constituted by every born-again believer from Pentecost to the translation. Are you still there? Did I lose anybody? Did I labor that sufficiently? So he is setting out these churches to point prophetically to the experience which the church will go through in the course of this, this present age. Ephesus points to what has been called by some the apostolic period, but uh, I'm convinced that never closed. We've got the idea that an apostle is somebody who wrote inspired writing, and it isn't anything of the kind. An apostle is somebody who is sent with a message. Epaphroditus was Paul's apostle to Philippi. So it is the infant church. The, uh, I spell infant, A-N-T. Okay. It is the infant church, and most especially, it is the evangelizing church. Now, I recognize that these things go on in every period to one degree or another, but this is what's emphasized. How do you spell evangelize? E-V-A-N period. That's all i got room for. Again, very quickly, for those of you who were with us in the classes that uh, Brother Landon told me, remember that we paralleled these seven churches with the seven parables of Matthew 13. They parallel perfectly. And the first church points to the period of the sowing. A sower went forth to sow. That was the experience of the early church. They went everywhere preaching the gospel. Now, I'm not teaching the Revelation, so do not have time to go and check each of these out. There are tapes on this subject. Uh, Gail, we do have tapes on this subject, don't we? Yes. That can be obtained if you're interested in that. I'm simply building to something for our uh, purposes here. The church of Smyrna was the time of persecution. By the way, the infant church will take you from about 100 A.D. through 315 A.D. Now, there's some flexibility on those dates, but that's roughly the case. The persecuted... The per Say that word for me. I'm sorry, 100. This is the one. I'm looking at this one and writing that, and I'm so sorry. The, the uh, uh, Draw a line through your ink there. <laughs> uh, from Pentecost to about 100. I'm so sorry. The infant church will take you from Pentecost to about 100 A.D., uh, now, that's not to say there was not persecution prior to that time. There was, but this was the time of the beginning of the persecution of the great one. Thou shalt have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life to the church of Smyrna. The ten days pointed to the ten Roman emperors that came so severely against the church. Diocletian, Galerius, Nero, so forth. Now, the church of Pergamos begins what we know as the world church. That is to say, W-O-R-L-D. I told you couldn't write and talk. The world church was begun by a fellow named Constantine who baptized his whole army by marching them through the river and called them Christians and changed the system of religion in the Roman kingdom from pagan to Christian. And there was then the political decree that everybody was now a Christian. Well, of course, you've got a lot of people that are, quote, Christian now that don't want to be Christian, so you've got to satisfy them. So the way you satisfy them is bring everything they had in pagan philosophy into the church. And Constantine did precisely that. They were praying to spirits outside of the church, so they let them pray to saints inside the church. They were lighting candles outside the church for the dead, so they let them light candles inside the church for the dead. They had the Asherah outside the church, that is the goddess of fertility with the Madonna and child, so they brought that inside the church and put that label on Mary. And so you go with it. The beginning of the world church. And it takes you to roughly 500 AD when you come to the church of Thyatira. Yeah, I'm glad I don't have to spell that. <coughs> now we come to the rise of the papacy in Rome. Now I'm going to say something very quickly. A couple of us were having conversation about this a few days ago. And if I get on a bunny path here, I will not apologize for that. I think it's important. 
You understand, of course, that the church at Rome was one of the strongest churches at that time. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he wrote to a church whose faith was spoken of throughout the whole world, and Paul had never been there. You remember that? Romans chapter 1, I think, about verse 8 in that neighborhood. And Paul said, I have a desire then to come and to preach the gospel to you that are Rome. Of course, the gospel which Paul wanted to preach to them was not a gospel of justification. They already were justified, and their faith was spoken out throughout the whole world. He addressed the salvation of God. That was a special message. And because the church at Rome was so strong, there was a tremendous influence of that church in every part of the world. And therefore, as time went on, and you understand that in a hundred years, a lot of changes can take place in people's experience and attitude towards things, and that's plenty of time for the traditions of men to rise up, which Jesus said make void the law of God. Are you still with me? So there seemed to be then a necessary importance in putting special emphasis upon the eldership at Rome. And the plural eldership at Rome then ultimately became a singular bishopric that held authority over other churches in other areas. And as that thing continually over the years increased, there came to be a singular bishop in Rome which had authority over all other Christian churches, and that was the birth of the papacy as we know it. Now, the church of Thyatira addresses the ultimate end of that, the total apostasy against the revelation of God and the establishment of this goddess of fertility worship which had its origin in paganism in Revelation. What's that first book of the Bible? Genesis, chapter 11, and Nimrod and Semiramis. And Nimrod, you'll recall, had a wife named Semiramis. That's to be found in secular history, not in the Scripture. Nimrod had a wife named Semiramis who gave birth to a son named Tammuz, who does show up in the Scripture. And Tammuz was supposed to have been virgin-born of Semiramis and was the incarnation of Nimrod. And that was the beginning of the Asherah worship the beginning of the goddess of fertility who was the Madonna and child that held authority over every other god. That's why you see throughout the Old Testament references to Balaam, Balaam, Balaam. I'm uh, not sorry, not Balaam, but Baal pure, Baal uh, parism and so forth. Baal was the, the demon that held authority in a given geographical area. And the uh, Ashtaroth had authority over all of those Baals. Are you all still out there? See, that's a bunny pass, but I had to take that. So you have the beginning of the rise of the papacy in the church of Thyatira, and he said, I gave them space to repent of their iniquity. Now, I'm talking about a church. Let me reemphasize that. This is a church which God gave his blessing to, but it is apostatizing away from the Lord. He said, I gave them space to repent of their deeds, and they repented not. That's a reference to the preaching of the reformers, who, by the way, didn't want to leave the church. What's his name? Luther. Didn't want to leave the church. He wanted to reform it. He wanted to take it back to justification by faith, to get rid of the corruptible indulgences that came into the church at that time. The same could be said of Huss and of various others of those. So it's the beginning of the rise of the papacy, and it'll carry from 500 to about 1500 when you have the beginning of the Reformation, and that's the church of Sardis, the Reformation. And it was a reformation. It wasn't a substitution. Are you there? It was a reformation. It was not a substitution. They didn't want another church over there or another denomination over there. They wanted a reformation. But they got excluded from what was going on. That's kind of what we've called from time to time the, the, the left foot of fellowship. And Luther got the left foot of fellowship 
and out he was, along with all the rest of them, those of them who are still living. And then we come to the Church of Philadelphia. How many do I have? One, two, three, four, five. I left something out. Well, I'm not to that yet. Sardis, one, two, three, four, five, seven. Okay, okay, well, they're all there. All right, good. Yeah. Well, I was about to write Philadelphia, but I... Oh, well. The Church of Philadelphia is the Church of the Great Awakening. Now, all of this is important to what I want to say, and if I have to next week go on with this, it's all right. I get that right, Ted? I'm hurrying. Church of the Reformation will take you, again, the prophetic theme from about 1500 to 1700, which will begin the time of the Great Awakening. Now, the Great Awakening came under the ministry of such men as Wesley and Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, and on you go with them. These men were tremendously concerned that the people, I'm sorry, that the gospel of Jesus Christ be preached around the world, and God so anointed them in power that uh, the result, the end result was two entire continents were moved to the Word of God. And all of that began about the 1700s, the Great Awakening. You're familiar with that in church history. Now that'll take us up to about 1900 and the turn of the century. Now again, each of these characteristics is true in any age at one time or another or to one degree or another, but this is the basic flavor that you're seeing in the church as a whole until finally you come to the church of Laodicea. And of course the word Laodicea means people rulers. This is the democratic church. It is the apostate church of the last day. And all of this apostasy really began to show itself, though it was there in germ form and the seeds for everything were always present at any time in any uh, ministry. It really began to show itself at about the turn of the century when higher criticism came out of Germany and began to call into question seriously the Word of God as the Word of God, the Scripture as inspired by the Holy Spirit and inerrant and authoritative for matters of faith and practice. Now, when that began to happen, then the Word of God was deteriorated in seminaries, and as it was deteriorated in its position in seminaries, then that in turn began to deteriorate the material that came out of the seminary, and we began to receive the dubious benefits, if you would, of all of this higher learning. I feel a bunny pass there, but I can't take that. Most especially it has been true in denominational churches that apostasy began in the seminary, and it precipitated to the flock of God. For the most part, the flock of God was still holding fast to the Scripture, and they were attempting to convince them that they ought to lay down that authority in the Scripture and take up their benefit of, of uh, cemetery education. The apostate church then takes us from about 1900 whoops, to the second coming. I'm hoping for 1984, brother. <laughs> By 1984, may I say. <laughs> no, I'm not buying any white robes. Every now and then, you know, somebody will do that and we'll have a sale on ascension robes the next day. All right, now, the reason I've set these down is to point to the context in which verse 5 of chapter 3 appears. 
You understand, of course, that one of the main theses that the Reformers were striking out against, both those who, who were rebellious against the church and those who were concerned for the church, for you had both, von Stoppitz, who was the man who so severely influenced Luther's life, I should say so strongly influenced Luther's life, um, who were attempting to bring justification back in to the doctrinal position of the church. Now, may I illustrate very quickly? I trust all of us here understand whatever denominational uh, background we have, that oftentimes our denominational doctrinal statements will speak truth, while those who preach to us in those groups don't. May I cite an example? The doctrinal statements, and I think it's called the Book of Prayer in the Episcopal Church, is that right, Joy? has some tremendously powerful, sound doctrinal position. But it's kind of lost in the fog of secular humanism. Are you still there? The statements of the Episcopal Book of Prayer on healing are tremendous. The statements of the Episcopal Book of Prayer on justification by faith are tremendous. Declaration of the Godhead, it's tremendous, but it's somehow lost in all of the intellectual nonsense that's brought forth. Are you still there? Now, these men wanted to bring the church of Thyatira, or this apostate system, away from the truth of the Word of God, back to the truth of the Word of God. And they were finding themselves totally unsuccessful in that effort. Justification was the singular theme of the message of von Stoppitz and Zwingli and Luther and Huss and on you go. That was their basic chief message, but it was unheard. So they were excluded. Now we see the beginning of the Reformation in the church of Sardis, and the word Sardis means remnant. Now you come down to verse 5. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Now, they'd been told if they didn't toe the line, they wouldn't make it. If they didn't buy these indulgences, they wouldn't get out of purgatory, about which the Scripture speaks nothing. And what is God saying? And I will not blot his name out of the book of life. They've been telling you I would. I'm telling you I will not. Are you all getting the point? So that the restoration of the doctrine of justification by faith settles everything that is necessary to my redemption on the finished work of Jesus Christ. I will not blot your name. That would sound good to somebody that had been living under legalism all of their life. Matter of fact, that's not so far from us. Legalism is as present today in the Judaizers of this present day as it was in Paul's day, as it was in the days of the Reformation. This do, and thou shalt live. Funny path there, I can't take it. So the emphasis of verse 5. Now we got some other things we need to talk about as we have time to do them in connection with it. Yes, sir. <coughs> no, sir. No, 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 no. The age of the church? No, 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 no. The times of the Gentiles ceased in 1967, uh, not 47. The times of the Gentiles ceased in 1967. Uh, no, the age of the church will not cease until the translation. Yes. The, I, I, that's the only thing I can think of you could be referring to, Don. 
that you make the distinction between the times of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles will come when the last Gentile is added to the church of Jesus Christ, and then it's going to be translated. The times of the Gentiles addresses the captivity of the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus said that Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, that took place in 1967. That was the end of the times of the Gentiles. But now we're still waiting the fullness of the Gentiles. All right. Now, there are obviously some other texts in the Word of God which have reference to blotting one's name out. So let's go back, please, to Exodus 32, and let's take one of the famous ones, Exodus 32. Verse 30, And it came to pass on the next day that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin. Now they've sinned, yes? And now I will go up unto the Lord, and perhaps I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, O this people have sinned a great sin, and have made them gods of gold. Yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin. By the way, have you taken any time to meditate on the profound situation before us here? Yet, if thou wilt forgive their sins, and then you have no end of the sentence. It's kind of like Moses at this point got choked up. He couldn't go any farther. He's pleading before the Lord as a true intercessor. And he says something then in the next phrase, which is only repeated by one other man other than the Lord Jesus himself, and that being Paul. And if not, Blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book, which thou hast written. In other words, he says, you remove me from all of the blessings that belong to your people. You exclude me from the inheritance that belongs to this your people that you've called out, if you'll just redeem them. Paul was putting himself, Paul, what's this man's name? Moses was putting himself in the place of their judgment. Blot me, I pray, out of thy book. Now, what does God say? Verse 33, And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore now go lead this people into the place which I have spoken unto thee. It worked. You observe that. Now, let's look at the next phrase. We still agree that these people had sinned. Yes? Whosoever hath... I'm sorry, let me read 33 again. Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of that book. Now verse the last phrase. Behold, mine angels shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day that I visit them, I will visit their sin upon them. Now, let me emphasize this. He said they'd sinned at the outset. He says in verse 33, whosoever sins against him, he'll blot out of his book. And in the last phrase of verse 34, that he's going to visit their sin upon them. In other words, in chastening. Now, if the sin that he's talking about in verse 33 is just any kind of sin, and if I may suggest to you uh, the worst kind of sin that an Israelite could commit against God was idolatry, it was at the top of the list. It was coupled with the first and great commandment. I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt love, me with, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. That was the chief thing. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
And in this text, that is precisely what they did. They put other gods before him. The declaration is that they had sinned, but in verse 33, whoever sins against me, him will I blot out of my book. How do you reconcile that? The emphasis in verse 33 is toward an entirely different kind of sin. Not one of failure before God, but one of open, blatant rebellion against the redemptive work that's in Christ Jesus. We'll cite the example. You remember that Paul, uh, Paul, what's this guy's name again? Moses. Told us in the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy that a prophet like unto him, the Lord would raise up unto them, and to him will ye hearken. Moses was anticipating that one who was going to come. And that one who was going to come was the one who could do precisely what Moses was calling on the Lord to do with him. He would be the one who was blotted out from the book of the living for our sake. The one upon whom God's judgment fell so that that judgment would not fall upon us. Will you go with me, please, with that thought in mind, to Psalm 109. Psalm 109. I'm sorry, Psalm 69. I'm not ready for 109 yet. Psalm 69. Now look at verse 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not written with the righteous. Will you back up with me with that verse in mind to verse 21 and let's discover the context which he's addressing. Remember, Jesus Christ was going to come to his people, Israel, and the question was before us, what were his people Israel going to do with Jesus Christ. And he said, Whosoever sins against me, him will I blot out of my book. Not just the question of committing idolatry, which they had done there. Not just the question of committing adultery or of theft or of lying or of any other such like thing that is enumerated in the ten of those commandments. But rather something much beyond that that directly related to their redemptive benefit. Verse 21. And they gave me also gall for my food, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. About whom does that speak? Oh. <clears throat> let their table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. What is he talking about? That which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Hmm, what? Oh. Death, the cross, indeed. The cross that should have been for their welfare becomes to them a trap. We've said in your hearing before that the same cross that redeems the believing sinner is the basis for condemnation in the unbelieving sinner. Nobody goes to hell because they're a sinner. They go because they have not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Are you there? So what would have been for their welfare, the cross, let it become a trap. Let their table become a snare unto them. The table that's addressed is the table of communion. And the table of communion, rather than redeeming them, is going to be a snare to them. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not. Blindness in part has happened. You all still with me? Okay. Blindness in part, Romans 11, has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Let their eyes be darkened. Are we being consistent? And make their loins continually to shake. You're going to be a byword in the nations that I will scatter you. 
God said, and their loins are... Would you say that Jews today around the world are victimized by shaking loins? A synagogue in France, uh, anti-Semitic writings in the United States, as well as the several other things, and on you go with it around the world. And I mentioned to somebody the other day, one of the students in the class in uh, San Marcos, thank you. I said, I am convinced that there is going to be a tremendous rise in anti-Semitism around the world in this last day. It's indicative, indicative of a lot of things pointed to in the Scripture, what's happening right now. Verse 24, pour out thine indignation upon them. His blood be on us and on our children. Let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. And he destroyed their city, destroyed their uh, temple, and burned it with fire in 70 A.D., and the judgments of God have followed. Verse 25, Let their habitation be desolate until the times of the Gentiles closed there, Brother Don, in 1967. Their habitation has been a desolate habitation. I've got to say this parenthetically. I'm so sorry for this digression. But it's of interest to me that there is so much cry going up for the restoration of the land, or at least part of Palestine, as it's falsely called. See, Palestine comes from Philistine, and it hadn't been there in a long time. And the, there's so much cry going up about restoring the land of Palestine to the Palestinians, the land of Philistia to the Philistines. And you know what that land was like before the Israelites moved in? It was a malaria-ridden swamp, or it was desert one of the two. The walls were broken down. The timber was not. The water was not. Mos malaria mosquitoes were everywhere. And anyone who lived there was subject to that kind of problem. And when the Jews began to move back into the land, they planted eucalyptus trees to soak up the water. They planted trees in the desert. They took the eucalyptus trees and made pulp paper out of it and began to irrigate the land where there was no rain with how you call that, it's a passive irritation. You put plastic over it and it condenses the water that's under it and it falls back down like rain and I don't remember even or understand all that I heard about that. But they turned the desert into a rose, in fact. And now we should give it back. When the Ottoman Empire held it, took it over, I should say, it was, you understand the Scripture. Some people are puzzled by this. The Scripture so talks about the cedars of Lebanon and the glory of the forests of Israel. They used to be until the Turks took it over and they taxed everybody on the basis of how many trees they had on their land. What would you do? They did. So they cleaned the land completely of trees. Let their habitation be desolate and it was until God began to bring them back and let none dwell in their tents verse 26 for they persecuted him whom thou hast smitten he was delivered up through the predetermined pre said for me thank you counsel and foreknowledge of God and ye by wicked hands have crucified him Acts chapter 2 Persecuted him whom thou hast smitten. And they talked to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Now verse 27. Add iniquity unto their iniquity and let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be wit written with the righteous. Let me ask you something, beloved. Who is he talking about? Hmm? 
The unbelieving who? Oh, Israel. He's addressing a people to whom Messiah came, and they rejected that Messiah, and he said, let their house be left unto them desolate. And it was, and it is, precisely as he recorded it here, God has cut off, and we'll emphasize this in a moment, the genealogy of Israel. Did you know there's only one Jew alive with his genealogy on record? Only one. Who? Yes. The only Jew alive with a written genealogy. God saw to it that the rest of the written genealogies of Israel were totally blotted out. I was always amused every time I asked an Israelite what tribe he's from, he says, Levi. I've never had one tell me Dan yet. <laughs> God never got along well with Dan, you understand. I've never even had one tell me Judah. There may be some around, but I've never encountered one of them. It's always Levi. There's not a Jew alive that can prove his genealogy save Jesus Christ himself, and he can prove it through both lines to testify to his right to the throne of David. The issue in the passage is the cutting off of the nation of Israel. And somebody says, well, Jews are being saved. Well, assuredly, beloved, you remember that the Lord is very careful to point out to us in Romans chapter 11 that God always has a remnant according to grace. And in every time, in whatever apostasy, however gross the period, God has always reserved unto himself the remnant according to the election of grace. And Paul illustrates, does he not? In the day when Elijah says, Lord, sits under that juniper tree. You remember that? That's one of these cedar trees we got. You know, Jim's got so many of them out there on it. That's a juniper tree. And he sat down under one of those things, probably sneezed a little while. And then he said, Lord, kill me. I'm the only one left. And God said, Elijah, I have yet reserved unto myself 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal nor lifted up their voice to graven images. There's always a remnant according to grace. While the rest have been cut off, the natural branches have been now cut off from the olive tree, and we, the wild olive branch, the unnatural olive branch, have been grafted in. That parable points to the national, I'm sorry, to the covenant blessings of Israel. And God has cut Israel off from her covenant blessings and he has grafted in the Gentiles into that covenant blessing. Repentance is granted unto the Gentiles. And in that same text in Romans 11, he goes on to say, take heed you Gentiles, lest he cut off the unnatural branches and the natural branch be grafted in again. That is precisely what he's going to do. When he has done calling out of the Gentiles a people for his name. I hope this does not seem totally foreign to the text. You've got to see the context in which it's written. When he has done calling out of the Gentiles a people for his name, then he will graft in again the natural olive branch which has been cut off. The adulterous wife in another parable or analogy, if you would, metaphor. The adulterous wife who has been put away is going to be joined again to her husband without spot or wrinkle, that same one. You still with me? So the text is addressing the nation of Israel who rejects her Messiah, and because she has rejected her Messiah, she is blotted out of the book of the living. That's where she is now. Do you still see that? You still with me? I didn't ask you if you agreed with me. I just want to know if you understand what I'm saying. All right, now let's emphasize this genealogical thing a little bit uh, uh, more, if I may. Go with me, please, to Psalm 49. Which direction is that? It's over here. <coughs> Psalm 
Now, it's important to remember, particularly in the Old Testament Scriptures, how important genealogy was to the Jew. Do you understand, of course, that the Reformed Jew today views uh, eternal life as a perpetuating of his family? His eternal life is maintained by his children and his grandchildren and his grandchildren and his grandchildren, and so you go with it. That's kind of a Sadducee idea, yet carried over. Now look at verse, uh, well, let me start from 7. None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceases forever, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. For he seeth that the wise man die, likewise the fool, and the stupid person perisheth, and leave their wealth unto others. Now verse 11. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever, and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own name. Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not, he is like the beast that perishes. In other words, they're seeing a perpetuity of their family line. And what God is pointing to is the arresting of that genealogical line. I'm going to cut it off. Exodus chapter 20. He is a jealous God who visits the iniquity of the fathers, unto the children, unto the fourth generation, or the tenth generation, I'm sorry, tenth generation, of them that, come on, hate me. Yes, don't quote that without putting that on there. Unto them that hate me. I feel funny, Pat, there too. Did you know something, beloved, that when you were born again, you got a whole new genealogy. You died to your former genealogy and all of the iniquity and how shall I say uh, perpetuity of wickedness that was involved in it and you were raised in an altogether new genealogy and if you can count your genealogy any further back than Jesus you're in trouble well look with me quickly to Deuteronomy 29 let me emphasize that a little further Deuteronomy 29 Now he's again in the context, particularly starting from verse 16 or verse 10 for that matter, talking about those who will apostatize against the Lord and go into idolatry. In verse 19, and it will come to pass when he heareth the words of this curse that he bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of mine heart to add drunkenness to thirst. The Lord will not spare him. But then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against him, against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord will blot his name, what? From under heaven. You understand the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is under the sun. Under the sun. Blot his name from under heaven. God is not through with the nation of Israel, but he has cut them out. He cut them off from being a nation under heaven. The whole issue of under the sun, beloved, points to what is happening in this earthly sojourn. And he said he's going to blot his name from under heaven. Do you remember that when the remnant returned with Nehemiah uh, to establish the temple once again? Go on and turn to Psalm 109. Well, I'm talking, Psalm 109. That there were some among them who were put as polluted from the priesthood because they could not what? Their genealogy. 
They were put as polluted from the priesthood because they could not declare their genealogy. The apostate priesthood had, in effect, been cut off from under heaven. Let me ask you something. Have they, have they been cut off in the heavens? No. Two weeks ago or something like that, we were addressing Ezekiel 44 as God addressed the apostate priest and the fact that they led Israel away in their iniquity. Well, surely that would fall into the category of the kind of judgment we're addressing. And yet he says in the heavenlies that they are going to be servants to the house of the Lord, but they shall not come nigh unto me, God said. Ezekiel chapter 44. Check it out yourself. Psalm 109. Maybe we'll get it in after all if you'll give me one more minute. <clears throat> Verse 6. One more than I need, I mean. One more than I got. Coming. That clock's fast. Set thou a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right hand. About whom does Psalm 109 prophesy? Judas, precisely. The passage is recorded by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 1, so that there is no mistake about whom he speaks. Set thou a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned. Let his prayer become sin. This is one of the severest imprecations, by the way, in the Scripture. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually wanderers and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Let, their extortioner, let the extortioner catch all that he hath and let the stranger spoil his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy unto him. Neither let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Notice that genealogy? You all picking up on that? Do I need to go back and labor that some more? I don't have time to go back and labor it. The emphasis is in every case on earthly genealogy. Verse 13, let his posterity be cut off, earthly genealogy. And in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Do you follow that? There is no inheritance nor blessing given to them. And again, in this context, he's talking about the posterity of the man Judas. So that in every case, we're looking at the rebellion of Israel, the nation which went away from the Lord, out of which God always has a remnant. We're looking at the rebellion of Judas in this case, whom God said he was going to blot out of his book. Their posterity would remember no more. Anybody know any relatives of Judas? Their posterity, I believe there was one, nobody admitted. Uh, you've heard the expression, your name is mud. And while the man has been vindicated for what he was claimed to have done at that time, the damage is still done. His name is mud. You all know where that came from, don't you? Hmm? He's the doctor, Dr. Mudd, that treated John Wilkes Booth after Lincoln was shot. Now, it was a very unjust judgment that came against him, but anyhow, their name's mud. The name is blotted out. The posterity is cut off, and the blessings that belong to Israel as his earthly inheritance are severed from them. That's what he's addressing. He's blotting them out of the book of the living. I'll tell you, beloved, that's why I so appeal so often to the message of Ezekiel 44, for while the blessings that belong to some people are blotted out here, there is an inheritance which belongs to them which is not blotted out there. Do you follow that? Amen. And while on the one hand God is bringing chastening on his people here, on the other hand he is establishing them for a, an eternal purpose through that chastening here for something he has for them there. And in each context when these terms appear, it has to do with what is under heaven, that is, on the earth. Do we follow that? What is under heaven and on earth? 
what has happened to the people of God who have so rejected their Messiah, what has happened to that one who has betrayed his Messiah. And, I, boy, I've got to quit. I'm sorry. I, I, Judas raises a lot of questions here. If I'd have said it, this is what I'd have said, and then I'll quit. All right, I don't see too many people standing out there. Most of you have already come in and sat down. It is of interest to me that the only individual in the whole of Holy Writ that Jesus ever called devil was Judas. And the word is not demonion. The word is diabolos. The only man. And Peter tells us that he fell from his position that he might go to his own place. Oh, he had a perfect reservation in torment. And then we come to the, to the uh, interesting, how shall I say, descriptive term of him as the son of perdition. Yes. Did you know that the Apostle Paul uses that same term to describe the man of sin that arises out of the earth in the last days to lead apostasy again against the Lord of glory? I just suggest that to you. Let his name be blotted out of the living. Let his posterity be cut off. Well, I can tell I'm not through. Some of you are just kind of... I had a professor used to say, chew on that a while. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name again. And though we have no inspired interpreters of this book, we have an inspired book, and we pray that he, the Spirit of truth, will guide us into all truth. We thank you in that name above every name. Amen.